Hello there, and welcome back to Peace In Their Time, episode 146, Indigestion. By early 1932, the Japanese had staked their claim to the Manchurian region through its brand new proxy state of Manchukuo. The benefits to the Japanese empire would be profound over the coming years. The region was rich in resources and had vast tracts of productive farmland. It was also relatively sparsely populated, at least compared to the core of China to the south. I suppose a better way of phrasing it would be it had a balanced population size. Not overpopulated like elsewhere, but large enough that an expanding economy was not hard up for labor. With the United States heavily restricting immigration coming from Japan, uh, recall the anti-immigration laws of the early 1920s that I discussed last season, Manchuria would also become the new pressure valve for overpopulation in Japan itself, and hundreds of thousands of settlers would colonize the region, to the deep chagrin of the existing Chinese population. This would make the region the jewel of the Japanese empire. And, best of all, Japan no longer had to deal with rest of authorities, as their proxies did their bidding, or their own people made decisions on behalf of the new puppet state outright. The campaigns of expansion that would see Japan's influence on the map spread all the way until 1942 were made possible by the gigantic acquisition, as Japan's chosen strategy of going it alone to achieve those conquests required a level of self-sufficiency that the home islands could in no way support by themselves. And in the eyes of the army, Manchuria also offered a perfectly situated base. From there, troops could check the growing danger of the Red Army, and maybe even provide a springboard for a northern thrust, which would create some internal debate over the direction of military aggression that I'll be covering in the future. It also definitely provided a perfect position from which to strike south towards Beijing and northern China. Though, as you might have gathered from today's episode title, there was a little bit of internal conflict over how to move forward. The invasion had badly isolated Japan, and while nobody in the West wanted a war, uh, with Japan's decision to strike during the depths of the Great Depression proving to be most opportune, uh, it also limited options for Japan. China was made a permanent enemy, and the empire could expect support from none of its traditional allies. The Leighton Commission sent by the League of Nations to investigate the invasion was also sure to decide against Japan, likely leading to formal international condemnation. It seemed as though the only way forward would be to pursue imperial expansion to its fullest, despite the daunting prospect of dominating an area the size of East Asia. Everyone understood that the invasion was merely the first round in what would be a long-term project, although the Japanese leadership rather dangerously were under the delusion that it would not be very costly. Their arrogance and assumption that the Chinese would perpetually roll over like they had during the days following the Mukden incident had not been dispelled by the strong Chinese showing during the Battle of Shanghai in early 1932. Then there was the fact that despite the urban heartlands of Manchukuo being secure and ripe for exploitation, there were still vast areas of the region that had not been pacified yet. The Japanese referred to resistance groups as mere bandits, which in some cases was not inaccurate, but failed to describe the real nature of the threat that they faced. The number of Chinese resisting the Japanese varied greatly, but in 1932 likely numbered in the hundreds of thousands. This represented groups that might in fact be considered bandits, but also ranged to the remnants of Zheng Zhulang's army, which had not evacuated south, but still maintained decent order and also their equipment. They were all too scattered and disorganized to pose a true threat to driving the Kwantung army out, 
but their presence uh, presented a headache to the occupiers that needed to be dealt with. Then there was Zhang himself to the southwest, where he was encouraging a guerrilla war and striking against forward Kwantung units who patrolled past the Manchurian heartlands. The young marshal proved enough of a nuisance that a continued advance towards Beijing became more and more of a necessity in the eyes of the Kwantung leadership, which was all in keeping with the imperial conundrum that I've been hammering home, that when you expand for the sake of security, you are then drawn into expanding more in order to better secure your fresh conquests, creating a terrible feedback loop. And then there was the effect that this crisis had on Japanese politics, which, uh, well, it understandably changed the whole game. The Kwantung army had acted independently and conquered a huge area over the protests of the nation's government, which proved to be powerless to resist. As it turned out, the independence of the military under the Meiji Constitution created an armed branch of the state that wasn't beholden to anyone else short of the emperor. The cooperation of the military up to this point had depended on the officers identifying with the establishment ruling class, and that connection had been fatally weakened. And just what exactly was going on in the home islands during this time anyway? Well, the Wakasuki cabinet was falling apart, that's what. While the coup plots and the Kwantung army going rogue were not immediate deal-breakers for the sitting government, the fact that it was totally incapable of enacting retribution onto the perpetrators completely undermined it. The acts of defiance against Tokyo, both abroad and domestic, were condemned, but when it came time for someone to actually face consequences, nothing happened. Or at most, token sentences were imposed on the guilty. In every case, the right-wing miscreants wanting to destabilize the nation were held up as misguided patriots whose hearts were in the right place. To his credit, Wakatsuki finally got fed up and resigned on December 11th, 1931. With the Mensaito party's reputation in tatters at that moment, Hirohito allowed power to shift back to the Sayukai at Prince Sayonji's urging. This passed the premiership to Inukai Sayushi. He had been a fierce critic of the London Naval Treaty and supported the Manchurian invasion, so he was seen as more in step with the common opinions of the establishment at that time. With him was Takahashi Korakayu as the finance minister. I mentioned Takahashi briefly last season, as he had served as prime minister after Hara's assassination, before being undone by his inability to unify support in the Sayukai during the days of the Siberian expedition. Takahashi had his work cut out for him again. Uh, the depression in December 1931 was only getting worse, and two years of what was basically inaction from the government had left their mark. He immediately took the nation off the gold standard and re-implemented the embargo on gold leaving the country. This happened mere months after the UK had left the standard itself, and while necessary, the move created no small amount of controversy. Conventional wisdom on the markets had been that after the UK abandoned the standard, that Japan would 100% follow them. This created a bonanza of speculation, since the Japanese currency, the yen, was sure to lose value if that was the case. The entire point being that leaving the standard would allow the currency to be less valuable. Speculators, therefore, started converting their yen into dollars, with the expectation that once the yen's value dropped, they could convert them back into much more yen than before. This wasn't a secret, and big companies, uh, most publicly the financing arms of the Mitsui and Mitsubishi Zaibatsu, were called out by the Wakasuki government during the autumn of 1931. Much of the activity was actually from foreign speculators, especially on Wall Street, but the PR damage was focused on domestic companies. When the gold standard was abandoned and the yen's value dropped, 
the speculators made a bundle, which blew up in the face of Inokai and his cabinet. While the move was necessary, the public windfalls made by some of the Zaibatsu painted the government as acting in the interests of big companies, which only further undermined the people's faith in their democracy. It also had the effect of weakening Japan's relationships with the financial sectors of Western nations. The unilateral decision to leave the standard, coupled with Japan's Manchurian adventure, meant that foreign banks looked to reduce their business in Japan, tightening that nation's financial options, just as its foreign policy ones were undergoing a similar tightening. That wouldn't be an issue until later in the 30s when Japan was bogged down in a full-scale war with China, but when it did come, it would be a big issue. Takahashi didn't stop at abandoning the gold standard either. He vastly expanded government spending, providing a relief to the rural villages, as well as spending more on the military, which was to be expected given that not only was the Kwantung army suddenly very active, their conquests required that reinforcements be sent from the garrisons on the home islands. The industrial base that supported the army would have a very good couple of years. That being said, it would be inaccurate to say that military spending dominated everything on the national budget. The additional spending was a boost to the nation's industries, but it wasn't quite earth-shattering. In fact, after 1933, Takahashi would ease off on military spending, mostly as a consequence of events in China finally cooling down somewhat. This would cause problems for him down the road, as the military men had by that time gotten used to generous spending increases, and their ambitions had not yet been sated. The eventual invasion of China proper would of course change things, but from 1934 to 1937, the military's allotments were more in line with a peacetime footing than the state of perpetual quasi-war that the general staff believed themselves to be in. Spending also increased to alleviate the plight of rural villages, this taking the form of public works projects that gave work to underemployed farmers, which was entirely necessary as domestic terrorism was going to see resurgence in spring 1932, with many of those who were hostile to the government hailing from the countryside. People from there, the cities, and the military formed loose bands of conspirators who aimed at assassinating the politicians and businessmen that they believed had led Japan to ruin. A major group of discontents would get the label League of Blood, which was kind of misleading as there isn't any evidence of blood oaths or overly dramatic rituals. But it does sound cool, so I'm going to use the term. The group of assassins began their work on the 9th of February 1932, when the former finance minister Inoue Junoke was shot as he left his car on his way to give a speech at a Tokyo school. The attacker explained that the former minister had brought it on himself after bringing poverty upon the nation's farmers. On March 5th, Dan Takuma, a leading executive of the Mitsui Zaibatsu, was gunned down going to work at the corporate headquarters. The violence came to a climax on May 15th, when a group of 11 naval cadets, most barely even 20 years old, burst into Prime Minister Inokai's residence and assassinated him. The group also attacked the residencies of a member of the Privy Council, as well as Prince Sionji's home. Both the Sayukai party offices and the Mitsubishi Bank's headquarters were attacked. Charlie Chaplin, the legendary actor, happened to be visiting Japan and was on the list to be killed with Inokai, but was instead with the Prime Minister's son watching a sumo match at the time and escaped the violence. The May 15th incident, as it came to be called, was obviously a shock to the nation. Given everything happening at that moment, the establishment finally came to grips with the fact that they were in the midst of a crisis, and that the status quo politics simply weren't going to cut it. It was referred to internally as 
a period of emergency, which, for the measured language of the Japanese state, spoke to the gravity of the situation. Sionji, the most influential advisor to the emperor on matters of politics, was left in a quandary about how to move forward. He personally had advocated for party governments for decades and had fought endless battles in order to see elected representatives lead the nation's government. The default choice was simply to elevate Inokai's successor in the Sayukai as prime minister, that being Suzuki Kayasaburu. But Suzuki was an old enemy of Sionji's and detested the last Genro's internationalist stance. Suzuki also advocated bringing the emperor in more directly on decision-making. Sionji desired someone who would unify the various factions in Japan's politics, because while it appeared the militarists and ultranationalists held the advantage, their fortunes could turn just as easily if they overstepped. Consensus was needed, which led to Admiral Saito Makoto getting the prime minister spot, a departure from the party politics of the 20s. The emperor had requested a man of high character who could instill military discipline onto the government, and Saito seemed like he fit the bill. He commanded respect from his time as a naval minister in the 1910s and for stabilizing Japanese rule in Korea after the 1919 uprising. He immediately set to work creating a unity government, setting up members from both the Menseito and Sayukai into cabinet spots. The Menseito's members were happy to get a foot back into government as they slowly rehabilitated their image, while the Sayukai joined in with Saito with the expectation that when the crisis passed, that political power would revert back to them. What the memberships of neither party realized was that, was that the old politics weren't coming back. Saito had brought both of them in, but neither party would be making appointments into the bureaucracy, nor would they be crafting policy. The non-party establishment, meaning the powerful members of the individual ministries, the influential in the House of Peers and the Privy Council, the military, and the court, would all start exerting more and more influence at the expense of elected officials. It would be a return to politics as they were before the 20s, with the difference this time being that the empire was in terrible danger and needed to take drastic action to survive. Or at least, that was the atmosphere. The class of government bureaucrats that would emerge in this increasingly, although not immediately totally authoritarian post-party environment, would be dubbed by the media the new or renovationist bureaucrats. They weren't uniform in age or experience despite the quote-unquote new appellation, but shared a vision of enhancing national power through government intervention, bypassing the capitalist business sector and the electoral process, both of which were now seen as discredited. Those with expertise would guide the nation as professionals with a job to do, unbeholden the special interests. This all isn't to say that the party system was swept away immediately, far from it. The Sayukai and Saito both remained, and the Diet continued to be where legislation was passed, budgets were approved, and policy debated. It was just that the ministries that actually carried out the governing slipped out of party control. It would be easy to condemn Japan's politicians for relinquishing that kind of influence without more of a struggle, but the problem was that in the environment at the time, public opinion, indeed the very weight of the masses, was directly against them. The depression and years of being in the pocket of the business class had discredited mainstream politicians. Their inability to influence events then made them look weak. Meanwhile, the people were against the foreign policy choices taken by party governments that they didn't see as benefiting Japan, and worse, benefited foreign powers like the U.S. who were hostile to them. 
Again, the anti-immigration laws of the U.S. were most harshly directed against Asians, and the Japanese people were well aware of the low opinion that Americans held them in. The Army's adventures in the Chinese mainland were met with such thunderous approval from the general population that taking a stand against the Army was political suicide. Public opinion had been vital in winding down the Siberian expedition a decade earlier, but this time around, it was firmly in support of pushing the national interest by force, which is both indicative of where discourse had gone after the stormy 20s and how the average citizen felt aggrieved and threatened by events abroad. The Manchurian invasion had emboldened the ultra-nationalists to act with impunity, while cowing its opponents into a sullen compliance as they waited for an opening that would never come to try and reverse course. I'm going to take a moment here to talk about the role media had to play in Japan's foreign adventures. I mentioned in past episodes that the tone of news sources had swung hard to the right in support of expanding the empire. Case in point, newsreels being flown in daily from Manchuria during the early days of the invasion. This was full-throated, even innovative support for militarism. The news companies all realized that the big money was in creating a nationalistic frenzy, and the journalists realized that supporting that was the best thing for their careers. Think of the yellow journalism of America in the late 1800s when it came to foreign threats, and then pump that idea full of steroids. A big success of the Japanese government had been in spreading literacy to almost the entire population. And as a result, the overwhelming majority of Japanese, we're talking over four out of five people here, read some kind of periodical. The big city ones coming out of Tokyo and Osaka were certainly popular across the nation, but most localities boasted their own as well, even in the impoverished countryside. And regardless of how big the publication was, they almost all beat the same ultra-nationalist drum. Book publishers got into the game too, releasing soldier accounts from Manchuria for the more uh, populist audience, and solemn tomes explaining the necessity of the occupation for the more egg-headed. Then there was the increasing prevalence of radios, at least in the cities and suburbs. A solid 36% of households in non-rural areas owned radios, with Tokyo hitting 50%. The people were bombarded with live bulletins and up-to-the-minute reports coming out of the mainland, which created a sense of excitement and anticipation as constant reports of Japanese exploits reached millions of homes every night. And by day, there would be songs played commemorating the victorious soldiers and broadcasts of funeral ceremonies for the fallen. But that wasn't the only source of propaganda either. Newsreels and movies were utilized, and public screenings of the news were commonplace. Newspaper and media companies would organize public speaking tours of intellectuals who would explain in exacting detail why Japan's course of action was just and what the people could do to better support their government and military. There were also exhibitions organized showing off trophies and military gear from the Manchurian invasion. One fun exhibit showed off China's anti-Japanese propaganda, which served to rile up the crowds at how the Chinese so unfairly hated them. The media successfully instilled in the populace that they were living in a serious crisis, while also making it a borderline vaudeville show. And that's something to always keep in mind, especially during these early years. The battles in China were distant, they were easy wins, and if things were going great then, there was no reason that they couldn't keep going that way indefinitely. Larger concerns like the nation's growing isolation, what the end game of the conflict actually was, and the human costs of the campaigns were not highlighted in these reports. 
What I'm getting at is that the people by and large got a very immature view of the conflict. Which, hey, that's kind of the point of propaganda. Deliver a simple message people can easily latch onto. But the reporting was so overwhelmingly one-sided that public objectivity was lost. And the few attempts to reverse course were tarred as unpatriotic and quickly denounced. And the reason I bring it up here is because of how complete this was and how quickly it took effect. Last miniseries, I talked about how the Nazis also dominated the media and used it as a tool to cement their regime. But in Germany, people still looked at each other nervously at the prospect of another world war. Hitler was very, very careful to always present himself as the reasonable peacemaker, even when he got to the point where he was gobbling up entire nations. In Japan, there was outright war frenzy. No assurances of peace, just demands for a purifying conflict to save the nation. This helped greatly to lock in politics at home, as there really wasn't much to do in the face of a public rearing for a fight. And this feeling of hysteria also laid the groundwork for an even darker turn in the future. If you know anything about World War II, you're probably familiar with the grim fanaticism that Japan fought with. Back in episode 55, I brought up the example of General Nogi, the hero of the Russo-Japanese War, who had ritualistically killed himself after the death of the Emperor Meiji back in 1912. At the time, the incident was seen as a throwback to an outdated mindset that no longer held currency in Japan. Fast forward 20 years, and the idea of making the ultimate self-sacrifice for nation and emperor was back in vogue. Movies and published stories started appearing after 1932 about Nogi, how he had dispassionately ordered thousands of their deaths, storming Port Arthur for the emperor's glory, and how he followed his master at the end of his life. The military encouraged their preferred version of the Bushido Code of Ethics to be disseminated to the populace in order to prepare them for the struggles to come. In broad strokes, it meant absolute commitment and obedience to national leaders and a subsuming of personal desires in the struggle to meet the empire's objectives. The inculcation of this mentality was aided by stories coming from the battlefields. During the Battle of Shanghai that I covered last week, the army reported a story of a trio of soldiers who took it upon themselves to clear a large barbed wire obstacle that was blocking their unit's advance. The three soldiers each carried with them high explosives, and when they scrambled to the wire, they detonated themselves. They died, but the way was clear for their comrades to advance. Now, even in the crazy atmosphere of Japan at the time, the story was questioned. The three soldiers, or the three human bullets, as they were popularly referred to, were never positively identified. It was also brought up that troopers in that same area had cleared similar obstacles without resorting to suicide tactics. But those were all details, and the dramatic story won the day in the popular consciousness. Dying for the glory of empire was idolized above all, and numerous rip-off stories appeared in books and movies to a public eager to consume them which becomes really concerning with hindsight, as many of those most enthralled with the stories were boys coming of age at the start of the 30s. Stories like this provided an example to follow a decade later when they themselves were marching off to an even bigger war. It's also important to note that the place that the Empire had in the imaginations of the masses as well. The acquisitions of Korea and Formosa, as well as an accepted Japanese presence in Manchuria, was all part of how the people conceptualized their nation. They were not just a nation-state on the European model. They thought of themselves as something more expansive.
Theirs was a sphere of control, dare I say, mutual prosperity, to be spread to an Asia that had otherwise proven incapable of resisting the Europeans. And in exchange, they would take the pride of place at the head of a community that was increasingly becoming more and more Pan-Asian. And nowhere was the feeling of imperial destiny stronger than in Manchuria. A politician of the Sayukai had referred to Manchuria as the lifeline of Japan during a speech in the Diet, and the term stuck. The northeast of China would be Japan's lifeline in the short term, even as it enabled long-term decisions that would ruin the nation. Part of that feeling was due to lingering resentments that came out of the Russo-Japanese War some 25 years previous. Japan had definitely not fought that war for the sake of Manchuria, rather it was Korea that was the true prize. But the fact that Japan had marched further north and performed so well, while at the same time paying a terrible price in blood and treasure, distorted the national memory into having people think that the entire region should have belonged to Japan from an even earlier date. In the aftermath of the invasion, a whole cottage industry sprung up in Japan, highlighting how Manchuria wasn't even really Chinese, and its detachment couldn't be considered a breach of international law. The Leighton Commission, working on behalf of the League of Nations, sure as hell didn't buy that argument, but the Japanese people did. I won't waste too much time on the arguments, given how grasping and transparent they were, but it boiled down to Manchuria being a region that was usually unconnected to the old dynasties, and that while the Qing originally hailed from there, they were of the Manchu ethnicity, distinct from the Han Chinese to the south. And the Qing also kept Manchuria as a kind of preserve up until the end of their empire, which was all used to support the case that when the empire fell, the seceding Republic of China would not have an automatic claim to the region. This, of course, totally ignores the millions of Chinese who immigrated to the region and how the Qing dynasty, regardless of their policies, was the government of China, and when it was replaced with the Republic, that state laid claim to the Qing's territorial unit. The entire reason why the pre-KMT flag of the Republic of China was five lines of different colors was to represent the major ethnicities of the country, including the ones on the periphery. Then there was the fact that even if you entertain China not having a solid claim to the region, that there would be no reason for Japan to have one. Japanese thinkers would claim either that Manchukuo was an independent state for Manchurians, which was a total fiction that even many Japanese couldn't internalize, or that Manchuria somehow was originally under Japanese influence from olden days, and it was only a quirk of historical happenstance that it wasn't always in the empire's orbit, which is just a straight-up fabrication without even a grain of truth to it. And going back to the Manchuria as a lifeline idea, Many outlets abandoned the various moral justifications for the invasion and simply went with a line of thought that, in America, is usually summed up as bomb their ass, take their gas. Maps detailing Manchuria's vast resources were published everywhere, heralding the coming bonanza as the cure to Japan's ills. To get to the resources, Manchuria had to be developed, offering new jobs to the Japanese. Those resources would then be shipped in to feed industries on the home islands, where such commodities were scarce, at a time when the nation worked to wean itself off of foreign markets. Japan had not caused the Depression. It had come from the West. In order to ensure that such an event never happened again, the economy would have to become a closed circuit. Autarky, the idea of economic self-sufficiency, also espoused by Italy and eventually Germany, was to become the order of the day. 
to a simultaneously fired up and anxious populace, this all made sense. But that would require an integrated Manchukuo, where security had been firmly established. And that's why in two weeks, I'll be covering Manchukuo's transformation into a gigantic supply and resource depot, while next week, I'll be tackling the pacification campaigns in Manchuria, the attempts to stabilize Japanese rule there, and the follow-up invasions of northern China. So, join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.